0: Well, take your Bible again this evening and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we uh, were looking at 1 Corinthians 3 last week, but uh, I just touched on verses 16 and 17 last Sunday evening, and tonight I want to spend a little more time on these two verses because uh, this is very, very important for us to understand So, tonight we are looking at the subject of understanding who we are. And I want to just read verses 16 and 17 before we get started this evening. Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that's what you are. Let's just begin with a word of prayer tonight. Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is the bedrock of our lives. And Lord, we thank you that your word tells us who we are in Christ. That we have our identity that doesn't come from the world, but comes from you. And Lord, uh, you have declared that we as your church are your holy temple. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will help us tonight to grasp the reality of that truth and uh, how it applies and what we need to do in response as your people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless as we understand this passage tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, maintaining unity in the church can be very challenging at times. And as I'm sure you know, any decision... Involving a group of people Rarely pleases everyone You know that? So we have to be very wise In how we make decisions That will have an impact On other church members Years ago I read that the primary Difference between normal Armies and Christian Soldiers is that We often shoot our own Wounded How sad it is that we as Christians often allow strife and division to end up devouring one another. That reminds me of something I read recently. The article said this. It said visitors at the zoo were surprised to see an exhibit labeled Coexistence containing a lion and some lambs. The zookeeper explained there was really nothing to it. He said, all I have to do is keep adding fresh lambs. And maybe you feel like one of those lambs every once in a while. It sure seems like there are lions roaming around seeking to devour. And it often takes a lot of wisdom to maintain unity in the church. For example... An usher in one particular church wrote this. He said, In my position as an usher, the head usher, I was directed by several people in the Sunday morning congregation toward the distant thermostat. Separately, three worshipers had informed me that they were too hot. But before I reached the controls, two more people told me how cold it was in the sanctuary that morning he said praying for guidance on the way i unlocked the protected instrument i turned the dial down 3 degrees and up 3 degrees and as i returned to my position near the door all five faces were watching my actions they were all quite satisfied and relieved by the change in temperature And if you think that's something, I heard about another church where the senior pastor and the minister of music were not getting along very well. And as time went by, this began to spill over into the worship services. The first week, the pastor preached on commitment and how we all should be dedicated to God. And the music director got up and led the song, I Shall Not Be Moved. The second week, the pastor preached on tithing and how we all should gladly give to the work of the Lord. And the minister of music then led the song, Jesus Paid It All. The third week, the pastor preached on the evil of gossiping and how we all need to watch our tongues. So the musician sang, I love to tell the story. Well, with all this going on, the pastor became very discouraged. So he told the congregation he was considering resigning. And the minister of music got up and led the song, Oh, Why Not Tonight? (laughs) The following week, the pastor did, in fact, resign. And he told the congregation that it was Jesus that told him to do so, The minister of music led the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Now, there's something wrong there with the music guy always getting the last word. But the truth of the matter is there is division and strife in many congregations. And as we have seen in our study of 1 Corinthians, these first few chapters are dealing with the problem of division in the church. And last week, we spent time on that passage in the third chapter where Paul uses a building analogy and warns that we need to be careful how we build and uh, making sure that we're building well. He said we need to be using the proper materials, and we saw that was symbolic of uh, investing in that which is eternal. And the emphasis there is on the... uh, The the analogy is on the quality of our work, making sure we're building well and using the proper materials and making sure that we're investing in that which is eternal rather than wasting our lives on that which is temporal. But in the context of that analogy, he says in verses 16 and 17, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And then he gives this warning. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. I believe there is enough in just these two verses that I can spend an entire message on this this evening. So, what I want to do tonight is to thoroughly examine verses 16 and 17. And the message, as I said, is entitled, Understanding Who We Are. This is corporately as the church, understanding who we are as his church. We're going to take three main points tonight. The first one is understanding what it means to be the temple of God. Understanding what it means to be the temple of God. And in order to grasp the richness of this passage, we must first understand the picture that came to mind to the Apostle Paul when he mentioned the temple of God. When Paul asked the question, do you not know that you are a temple of God, he had something very specific in mind. There is no question that he was very familiar with the temple in Jerusalem, which was still standing when he wrote this letter. And this has to be the primary context of his comment. Because the deepest desire of God's heart was represented by the temple. In Exodus 25, 8, we read this. And let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. That has always been the desire of God's heart. And that, of course, is a reference to the tabernacle in the wilderness. But the temple in Jerusalem was patterned after this sanctuary. It is accurate to say that God has had four dwelling places on the earth. God has had four houses, if you will. And, of course, we understand that God is omnipresent, and He doesn't really need an earthly dwelling place. But the scripture indicates that it has been his desire all along to dwell among his people. And so the Bible mentions these four dwelling places. The first of those dwelling places was the tabernacle in the wilderness. And as we have seen in our study of Hebrews, the high priest under the old covenant would go into the tabernacle and go into the holy place and go through the holy place into the holy of holies after offering certain blood sacrifices once a year on the day of atonement. And he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the altar to purify the sins of the people. And after he did that, the Bible tells us that the Shekinah glory of God would descend upon the tabernacle and the people would stand in the door of their tent and they would see the Shekinah glory come down on the tabernacle and they would know without any doubt that God was in their midst. And this was the practice of Israel for hundreds of years until David became convinced that they should build a permanent sanctuary for God to dwell in. And as you know, the Lord would not allow David to build the temple, but his son Solomon built it instead. David was a man of war, and so he was not allowed to build the temple. But Solomon came along, and David had prepared everything for the temple, and Solomon built this beautiful Enormous temple. This was the first temple in Jerusalem. And so that was God's second dwelling place. God's second house, if you will. And when they dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, the very same thing happened. As they were dedicating it, the Shekinah, glory of God, descended upon it and filled it in such a way that the priests could not even do their work in the temple. But again, the people had absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the living God was in their midst. His presence was evident. So you have the tabernacle, you have the temple. Then there is a third dwelling place of God, and that is in the incarnation body of Jesus Christ. John 1:14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth. As Jesus walked this earth there was absolutely no doubt that God was again present with his people. Jesus spoke the very words of God. His miracles were proof that he was God. It was obvious to all who witnessed his person and his work that God was once again in the presence of his people. But of course, he was crucified and was buried. But on the third day, he rose Again, from the grave, and eventually ascended into heaven and took his place at the right hand of God the Father. Then came the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the Holy Spirit came upon the believers in the establishment of the church. And the Spirit came upon the believers in such a tangible and dramatic way that all the people who witnessed it, would know that God had a new house to dwell in, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would permanently, from that day forward, dwell in each and every one of his redeemed saints. This is what Paul has in mind when he writes chapter 3, verse 16. He's using this concept to point to the church as the new temple of the Holy Spirit. And just as the Shekinah glory of God would descend upon the temple in the days of the old covenant, so he was permanently present in the new covenant believers. In other words, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The original word was for the Corinthian believers. And Paul says to them, in effect, don't you understand you are the temple of God? Don't you understand the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you? Why is that important? Because we need to understand that if we mess with the church, we are messing with the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And that is Paul's message. This is a very, very strong warning from the Apostle Paul. Paul's message is essentially, don't you see what you are doing to the body of Christ, the church, the temple of the living God? And of course, we understand he's not talking about bricks and mortar here. He's talking about He's not talking about the church building itself. He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about the fellowship of the church. Don't mess with the fellowship of the church. Why? Because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It was the fellowship of the church at Corinth that they were in danger of destroying through their division and strife. Their party spirit was hindering the unity that the Lord desires for His church. And so, this is what it means to be the temple of God. And we always need to keep that in perspective. You know, this is not just a building. This is not just a group of people. This is not just an organization. This is not just a place where we come together. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is God's... Fourth dwelling place. This is how God sees the church. It's not not just a congregation of people. This is the very temple of the living God. The church is God's fourth house. It is His place where He has chosen to manifest His glory in the world. It is through His church. But there's a second thing that we need to understand here. Not only do we need to understand what it means to be the temple of God, but secondly, there is the importance of understanding the danger of destroying the temple of God. The danger of destroying the temple of God. It's a very serious thing in the eyes of God to mess with his earthly dwelling place. Look again at verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. The temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. This is a warning from God that he will destroy anyone who ends up destroying the fellowship of his church, his temple. Of course, he's talking about the fellowship, not the organization. He's talking about the unity of the believers. This is a very strong warning that anyone who is guilty of destroying the fellowship of the church can count on becoming the very object of God's destruction. And I honestly believe that God has taken certain people out because of this. People who do this. This should cause us to fear and to determine that we will never do anything that will bring division and strife in the church. The fellowship of the church and the unity of the church is so precious to God that He promises to destroy anyone who destroys it. And you know, we can do do without a lot of things in the church and still survive. Uh, But we can never survive without the fellowship of the, of the believers. I mean, we could do without a building. Their churches don't have buildings. We could do without a, a piano. It's nice to have a piano, but we could do without a piano. We could do without pews. Well, we don't have pews. We could do without chairs. We could use metal folding chairs if we needed to, right? There are a lot of things we could do without and still be a church and still be okay, but one thing we cannot do do without. And that is Christian fellowship. If we lose the fellowship, we have lost it all. In our previous passage, we talked about building the church. We talked about building with the right materials and building with excellence. But here he says, make sure you don't destroy what you are building and what God is building through you. Make sure you don't destroy that. I mean, it's one thing to build with the wrong materials, but it's just as bad to tear down what you build. And in the same way that the church can collapse if it's not built right, so it can also collapse if the fellowship is attacked. And one thing we, that really helped me years ago was to come to understand that we don't create unity in the church. Unity is a given in the church. Uh, that's why the terminology in the New Testament in regard to the unity of the church is always oriented around the idea of maintaining the fellowship. We don't create unity. That's a given. That's, our unity is in Christ, in the person and work of Christ. But we must work to maintain that unity because it is so easily lost. And because Satan loves to use people to destroy it. And that's why in the New Testament, all the admonitions are about maintaining, preserving the unity of the body of Christ. So for just a few minutes, I want us to think through some ways that the destruction of the fellowship of the church can come about. There are essentially three primary ways that something can be destroyed. And all of them can apply to the church. The first way is by attacking it. By attacking it. One way you could destroy your business, for example, is to burn it down. I mean, you could just go torch it. Go set it on fire. And in the same way, there are those who directly attack the fellowship of the church. Now, in some places in the world, this... Equates to persecution. I mean, there are places around the world where church buildings are literally burned down. And so, they're literally seeing these kind of attacks. But here in America, usually this takes the form of criticism. Someone attacking the fellowship directly through criticism. There are some who have such a critical spirit... They are, in essence, destroying the church with their tongues. Now, they may not even be aware of the damage that they're causing, but their critical spirit is eroding the fellowship and the unity of the church. Someone once said, it doesn't take much size to criticize, but it's deadly to the temple of God, the fellowship of the church. One pastor wrote, Probably the number one sin in the world, often rendering prayer ineffective, is criticism with its roots of bitterness and hate. I've seen this kind of thing in the church. I don't see that here. I'm thankful for that. I don't see that in this church. But I've seen that kind of thing in the church. I've seen this kind of critical spirit Even to such a degree, I would think the pastor at some point would just get frustrated and and would just say, Brother Jones, why don't you stand and lead us in a word of criticism? Because you're so good at it. Listen, if Satan can get you to begin to attack the church through criticism, he will do it in a heartbeat. If he can... Fill you with the poison of bitterness and get you to start thinking that you're not getting your way. He has you right where he wants you as a weapon he can use to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus. Don't ever allow a critical spirit to invade your hearts. Don't ever become guilty of becoming used of the devil to destroy the fellowship of the church through your critical attacks. But there's another way that something can be destroyed, and that is by neglecting it. By neglecting it. You see, you don't really have to burn down your business to destroy it. All you have to do is neglect it. Just let it run down. Just get lazy and fail to manage it, and it will quickly go downhill. I mean, think about it this way. You don't have to plant weeds in your garden to destroy your crops, do you? No, the weeds will come up all by themselves. If you don't pull them, they can choke out the crops, but you don't have to intentionally plant them. Just neglect your garden, and it will end up destroyed. You don't have to beat your wife to destroy your marriage. Just neglect the relationship, and it will end up on the rocks. You don't have to cut your wrists to destroy your health. Just don't take care of yourself, and the next thing you know, sickness and disease will take over. And in the same way, you don't necessarily have to attack the church directly to destroy its fellowship. All you have to do is neglect it. And eventually, that will do the trick. Neglect can have the same effect as a direct attack. You know, it's like a a man on an inner tube above Niagara Falls. He doesn't have to do anything to fall to his death. He doesn't have to paddle or even make any movement at all. He can float along without any effort whatsoever and still perish. And by the way, a man does not have to curse God in order to die and go to hell. He simply can do nothing and end up there. He can be just like the man floating on the raft. Unless he repents and believes the gospel, he will be lost for all eternity. Now, we've seen this in our study of Hebrews. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And what's the answer? You won't escape. You'll float right past the safe harbor to destruction if you just neglect God's salvation. Someone once said, a sailor deserves to be lost at sea if he refuses a compass. A beggar deserves to be hungry if he refuses bread. A sinner deserves hell if he refuses God's salvation. But the point of this passage is that we are not to do anything that can result in the fellowship of the church being destroyed. And that includes... Our neglect, if we don't work at it, the fellowship can still become destroyed. You see, it takes hard work to maintain unity and fellowship in the church. and if you don't think that's true, uh, just uh, look around at other churches. It takes a lot of hard work to maintain the unity that the Lord has given to us. And so we need to do whatever it takes. We need to be willing to forgive one another. We need to be willing to be patient with one another. We need to uh, be mature and not allow little things that are said to irritate us and to cause us to become angry at someone. We need to work hard to preserve the unity of the fellowship. But there's a third way that you can destroy something, and that is by defiling it, by defiling it. Now, you and I really probably don't understand a whole lot about defilement the way the Bible writers did, but one way the temple could be destroyed was through defilement. The church can be destroyed in the same way. Years ago, I saw a sign in a window of a clothing store ...that has stuck in my mind all these years. It said, slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price. Too often, that can be said of the church. The testimony of the church can be greatly reduced by just a little sin. Later, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul is going to say, in essence, I can't believe the sin and immorality that you have allowed to remain in the fellowship of this church. And, of course, we might call that more than just a little sin, uh, the sin of incest. But the point is, the church's fellowship and witness can be destroyed by defilement. And please understand, God has never intended for the church to be like the world's. God's plan for the church is to be different from the world. So all these seeker-friendly methods that operate from the perspective that if we are just like the world, they will like us, miss God's plan by a million miles. That's not God's plan for the church. He doesn't want us to be like the world. He wants us to be different from the world in the second letter to these Corinthians Paul is going to admonish beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God that's what God wants for his church the word that is used for defilement there essentially means moral Pollution. Have you ever been somewhere where there is a polluted, a filthy polluted uh, lake or pond? You know, where there's trash all around and there's probably dead fish and there's this foul odor there. And as soon as you walk up to it, you know, this place is defiled. There's a foul odor that's detestable. That is a picture of what defilement can do in the church. It makes us odious to the people of the community. And that's why, under the Old Covenant, defilement of the temple was a capital offense. God wanted to make sure that His dwelling place remained pure and holy. And so we can destroy the fellowship through defilement. Look at verse 17 again. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. The temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. Under the old covenant, (coughs) the temple was seen as very holy. That's how God sees the church. This is why defilement of the temple was seen as such a serious offense. Of course, in history we see that The ultimate defilement of the temple in Jerusalem was uh, carried out by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who came in and offered a pig on the main altar and defiled the temple. Of course, he is a precursor of the coming of the Antichrist in the future. But the point is that this is what it is like when our sin brings defilement to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to the prophet Ezekiel, it was the sin of defilement of the people of Israel that led to the departing of the glory of God from the temple. And the Shekinah glory of God went to the portal of the temple and then finally it departed never to return. In fact, that was the case for 400 years temple became an empty shell god was no longer present and this shows us how serious defilement can be and applying this to the church which is clearly paul's purpose here he would we would have to say that the blessing of god could be removed from a church that allows sin to defile its fellowship if we allow sin to just go unchecked in the fellowship of the church We're in danger of God removing His hand of blessing from us. And it's interesting to note that in the Revelation, the warning given to those churches that allowed sin and false doctrine to move into their fellowship was that their candle would be removed. This likely symbolizes the loss of God's blessing and the implementation of His chastisement. On that church. That's the purpose for church discipline. This is why the steps of church discipline are so clearly spelled out in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And we clearly see those four steps that we're to follow. We must be committed to keeping the church pure. Any church that refuses to follow the command of Matthew 18 and do church discipline is not really committed to the purity of the church. Unfortunately, the contemporary church in America has been filled with moral scandal, as you know, has lost much of its power, much of its witness in the world. So we need to recommit ourselves to holiness and purity in the church. And that leads us to the last point in our outline tonight, which is, Understanding the principle of holiness. And I'll just finish this very quickly. But look at the last part of verse 17 one more time. <clears throat> For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. Now, what is that? That is a statement of positional reality. Positionally, in Christ, we have been made holy. Holy. We have received the righteousness of Christ, and therefore, in the sight of God, we are holy and righteous and pure. What's the problem? We don't always act that way, right? Our practical holiness does not always match up with our positional righteousness. In other words, we don't always live out who we really are in Christ. So Paul is calling on the Corinthians and us to raise the bar and to bring our practical holiness up to the level of who we really are. Notice, Paul doesn't say you need to be holy. He says you are holy. You are holy. This is a fact. In Christ, we have been made completely holy. This is our christian identity this is how we should see ourselves this is how we should see the church so what do we need to do well we need to embrace that identity and we need to begin to live according to that reality we need to raise our behavior up to the level of our identity now i want to stop here for tonight, because the next section is going to take more time. <clears throat> but we see in this passage of Scripture just how serious it is to destroy the fellowship of the church in any way. This this is a warning passage that could, should cause us to fear. If we act carnally, as these Corinthian Christians were doing, we can easily fall into those dangers, And any time we operate in the flesh, instead of walking in the Spirit, we can become guilty of these kinds of things. But these words are given to us as a warning. They're written as a corrective in the church. We must not fall into the same traps. We must heed the warning and raise the standard. Let's pray together. Father, we... Pray tonight that we would be a church that is committed to the preservation of the unity you've given to us in Christ, that we would not allow any fleshly attitudes, any immature behavior to cause us to be used of Satan to attack or even destroy the fellowship of the church. And Lord, we know there's more than one way that the fellowship of the church could be destroyed, but help us not to be involved in any kind of direct attack through criticism. Or help us not to be guilty of neglect that we would be committed to working hard to preserve the unity of the fellowship. And, Lord, help us not to allow any defilement to destroy your temple. So, Lord, we pray. Again, tonight, that you would help us to understand just how you see your church, that we would take it seriously, and that we would be committed to your dwelling place, the holiness of your church, and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.